Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It is, uh, what is it? It's about two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Maybe you're listening via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton and joining me via Skype is, shortly, Farm Sharko. <laughs> We're having a few technical difficulties this morning. So I'm going to kick off uh, while Nerida gets uh, Farm back on Skype. Um, kick off by thanking Tim Thorpe very much for his uh, six hours of Idle Bits over this weekend. Three hours yesterday, three hours today. Thank you so much, Tim. We do all love you so very much. It's been a long time since you've been here in the Triple R studios and uh, look forward to that happening again. Um, but you will be on our airwaves next Saturday morning at 6am. Aren't we glad for that? And thank you so much, Andrew, for uh, Soulful Bits Retro, Andrew. Uh, like, like, likewise, we'll uh, have Andrew back in studio one day. We're all going to hang on to that, aren't we? Today's program, uh, we have an eclectic mix of things coming up for you. We are going to uh, be joined shortly by uh, Ben Francoshelli, Museum Victoria's pa- vertebrate paleontologist. He's going to be joining us. We spoke with Ben a couple of weeks ago. He didn't quite get to everything we wanted to talk to him about. So he's going to be talking about some recent marine vertebrate fossils found uh, before the Melbourne lockdown and an exploration of the ethics of fossil collecting in the area. We're also going to catch up with PT Hirschfield. She's going to be uh, updating us on our uh, Save Our Spider Crabs campaign ours, theirs, continuing through the stage four lockdown. um, We caught up with Dallas De Silva a couple of weeks ago talking about the great work that uh, Victorian Fisheries Authority are doing with uh, their research into spider crabs, what happens when they all dissipate after their, or disappear after their uh, annual migration and molting. So we'll be catching up with PT in terms of what's been going on over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Then we're going to be crossing to both Perth and uh, Port Stephens. So Perth, obviously, in Western Australia, Port Stephens in New South Wales, to speak with uh, Rebecca Prince-Ruiz and Joanna Atherfold-Finn. They have both co-authored a book called Plastic Free, The Inspiring Story of a Global Environmental Movement and Why It Matters. So uh, when we get uh, FUM back on shortly, um, FUM can, uh, FUM's been talking about Plastic Free July for the last few years on this program. I'm sure you're aware of that. And uh, it's very exciting to have its founder uh, being Rebecca prince Royce on the phone and, uh, and also with Joanna to talk about this really fascinating book outlining the history behind Plastic Free July and uh, incredible global movement that this one-off idea has sparked, uh, which is really fantastic. And then to close the show, Rex Hunter, our own resident maritime archaeologist, he'll be talking about the Time Ball Tower in Williamstown and what an important navigation aid it was in the 1850s. Massive show lined up for you today, something for everyone, and uh, I'm very pleased um, to be able to say good morning to Fum Sharko. Fum, good morning. Are you there? Hi, I hope I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. We got you on the phone, did we? <laughs> yes, we do, because the Skype's not working with us. And I think, uh, can you hear me, is probably uh, the most spoken sentence of 2020 <laughs> by now. <laughs> I reckon you're probably right. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, apart from, can you see my screen? <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. And are you still there? And hang on a minute, I'll try and work out what's going and be right back. So Yeah, um, exactly right. So I do have some weather for you. Yes, please. Um, today in Melbourne, it's partly cloudy with a medium chance of a shower, about 40% in the outer northwest suburbs this morning, uh, 60% everywhere else. Um, winds are southeasterly, 15 to 25 k's an hour and becoming late in the, light in the late evening. Uh, for Geelong and the surf coast, if you're lucky enough to be there, uh, partly cloudy, slight 30% chance of a shower this morning. The winds are southeasterly, 25 to 40 k's an hour, so it's getting a bit gusty out there. And for tides, we have the north of uh, Port Phillip Bay, Ricketts Point. Your next low tide is 12 uh, 12.31 p.m. So if you are lucky enough to uh, be in the five kilometer radius and you are able to go out for a snorkel, it might be a good time to go. Uh, Sorrento, the next low tide will be at 11.36 a.m. Flinders, if you're lucky enough to be in your 5k radius there to go and see the sea dragons, there's a low tide at 9.22 a.m. So uh, stick with the show and then uh, go straight after. Torquay Surf Beach, low tide is on just about now. Uh, the next high tide there will be uh, 3.50 p.m. So get out there after the show if you want to try and do a surf before it gets too gusty. Nice, nice, nice. Thank you, Fum, very much. Um, now, I believe you have uh, a bit of news for us as well. I've got a couple of bits and pieces too. Yeah, so uh, there's been um, some research that has been done in uh, the Maldives in the Indian Ocean and uh, the paper has, has come out recently. Uh, this is a marine scientist from Flinders University here in Australia have tried to quantify the number of microplastics that they found on the Maldives. It's, um, Maldives is an amazing place to go diving, uh, but it also has a gigantic plastics problem, not only from uh, you know, waste management practices that are not quite up to scratch yet, but also from uh, you know, pl other places uh, where the rubbish just arrives from other countries to their islands. Uh, and uh, the amount of microplastic pollution in the waters around the Maldives uh, is amongst the highest in the world, they found out, and it has the potential to severely impact uh, the marine life in those shallow reefs and um, threaten the livelihoods of the island communities as well because the Maldives consist of a, of a whole bunch of atoll islands. Uh, so the marine scientists from Flinders University recorded the levels of plastic pollution in sand across 22 sites off the coast of uh, Naifaru, uh, which is the most populous island on the, on the biggest atoll there, uh, to determine how much the microplastics is present uh, around the island and they found that microplastic distribution was found to be very ubiquitous in the marine environment uh, and they published those results in the Science of Total Environment Journal and it's, I'm, I'm, I've been looking at the, um, the, uh, the map of where they sampled and they've basically done samples in beaches and then on reef flats and on the four reefs and pretty much in every sample they found between 200 and 42 and 333 pieces of microplastics per kilo of sand. Uh, so you can imagine if you extrapolate that across the islands, it's, uh, it's a hell of a lot of microplastics. So um, I am very excited uh, to speak with Rebecca from Plastic Free July after this and see how we can help out with this kind of uh, with this kind of disaster, it is a disaster. I think that's the only real—that's the only word that can really describe this situation that we're in. Uh, and it's kind of gone a bit quiet for um, for obvious reasons in terms of you know mainstream media and its coverage. But this is pervasive and it's ongoing and it's not going away. So, likewise, Farm, I'm really excited to be speaking with um, Rebecca and uh, and Joanna shortly.
Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait. <laughs> Great. Uh, a couple of quick plugs and then I think we'll go to a track. One is um, a piece of correspondence that's come through from Rob. Rob and his dog Spike. Good morning to you both. Uh, Rob just sent a photo, um, I think Rob's in Malacuta, of, uh, or maybe he just was sent this by somebody. But anyway, um, uh, big. Uh, the, the thing we've all been waiting for is uh, the big ash slug that has washed down from the bushfire-affected regions. And uh, this was uh, something that he's observed or someone's observed taking a photo in Malacuta. Um, the bar was open up on Tuesday, opened up on Tuesday. And uh, just this really incredible photo of um, just this black water kind of meeting the fresh water at the opening. And uh, I noticed just in social media that a very, very similar thing is happening on the south coast of New South Wales um, through uh, the Bega Times, I think it was. Anyway, or maybe Bega Valley Shire. But uh, same thing, just this all of this sort of black water just making its way into the ocean. So something we were all waiting for, Farmer, was going to happen eventually. Yeah, absolutely. We have been waiting for that, hasn't it? So, um, yeah, I'm hoping people can stay out there and, and observe what's, what's going to happen next. That's right. And we are going to actually farm. We've got you on Skype. Yes, I think we managed. <laughs> we did. Fantastic. Also joining us on Skype, I believe, is uh, vertebrate paleontologist extraordinaire Ben Francischelli. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, guys. Good to hear from you again. Oh, great to have you with us. Now, I've been butchering your name over the last few weeks. Can you can you <laughs> clarify for us, how do we pronounce your surname? It's Francis Shelley. Don't worry, everyone butchers it. I've had Francis Shallow before. I don't even know how someone got Francis Shallow, but, it, you know, weird things happen. I reckon I was pretty close then. I'm actually feeling you, a bit... You were pretty good. Don't, don't feel bad at all. That's quite good, really. Excellent. Now, um, when we left off uh, last time, we were talking about some recent marine vertebrate fossils uh, and we kind of, we ran out of time. So tell us what's been going on. This is really exciting. Yeah, so um, I'll just give a little bit of an overview for the people that are just tuning in right now and, and aren't aware of the project that Museums Victoria are doing. So uh, we're doing something called the Lost World of Bayside. And in Bayside, the uh, southeastern suburb, just 30 minutes outside of Melbourne, there's an incredible fossil site. There's two of them in particular. The first one is Beau Morris. Um, that's been known for over a century. And the second one was only recently discovered in 2018 with the help of citizen scientists. It dates back roughly five to six million years of age, and it's there that we're finding this incredible fossil material of some of the biggest predators uh, that have ever existed. And uh, to give you an, uh, an idea of what we're finding, I thought what I would do for this uh, broadcast is actually talk about the last time I went down to the beach, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Fantastic. So is this not in Beaumaris, but one of the sort of neighbouring suburbs? One of the neighbouring suburbs as well. It is in Bayside. Okay. Yes. And is, so, it a, is it a top secret location? It is a completely secret location. We've called it Site B, this site. <laughs> so uh, it's, and we actually got so the name inspiring. from Jurassic World itself. So, uh, yes, for all you nerds out there, yes, that's where we got the name from itself. Um, so this dive was actually particularly exciting because we went out on a whim. We weren't entirely sure with the expeditionary crew if we'd even have much luck out there. We looked at the forecast and we were like, ah. Oh, I'm not entirely sure if it's a good day for it. It was a week and a half ago before the lockdown happens, as you can imagine. And, um, you know, we, we were like, all right, let's head down. Let's see what we can do. And we got down to the site and it was as flat as a tack. Conditions were perfect. Gannets were pummeling themselves into the water, <laughs> eating the anchovies. You know, it was stunning. You know, you get into the water and I can tell you now, the water was cold that day, my friends. Very, very cold. 
11 degrees. <laughs> it's freezing. I oh, mean, yeah. Fang, you've been in the water recently. You know how cold it is, right? Yeah, I've been taking water samples. It wasn't fun. It's not that fun. You can't last for that long. So the trick <laughs> is to constantly keep on moving the entire time so that, that way you don't feel the cold as much, you know? So I don't take flippers with me. It's a very unconventional look. And so with the team, you know, we headed out and uh, within the first five minutes, a colleague of mine hands me over something and it's this kind of hockey-shaped disc, roughly the same mm. size as your fist. And I look at it and I go, that's really cool. It's a five million year old tuna vertebrae. <gasps> wow. That's radical. So tuna are quite large fish, you know, they get to two and a half meters in length. Um, probably some of the biggest of the bony fish that we know of today on the planet. So I was, I was like, that's a cool find. We're going to chuck that in the, in the bag, in the little tilly bag, and make sure that we record notes later. Ben, and then we kept on looking. Sorry, continue. I was going to say, how did you know it was tuna straight away? So the actual bone itself has a very reddish-brown tinge to it. Um, it's very unlike uh, cetacean bone, which can be quite porous in sections. Um, and when you look at enough tuna vertebrae <laughs> through online articles, you start to get an idea of what they're supposed to look like yeah, okay. as well. So you've kind of got that internal catalogue in the back of your mind of what these things so, are supposed to look like, you know? So, Ben, was this one... So this one is a fossilised tuna bone then? Correct. Right? Yes, yeah, so okay. this one was, yeah, so it had sediment adhering to the surface of it that indicated that it was roughly five to six okay. million years of age. Yeah. But then we kept on looking, right, and we kept on finding things, and it was a bumper day. It was really incredible. So um, we went a little bit shallower, and I saw this kind of pencil-like object kind of just drifting on the bottom of the sea floor. And uh, I went down, I held my breath, and I picked it up off the bottom and just kind of shucked out of the sands itself. It was loose. I held it in my hand, delicate little shaft. Both of the ends had been obliterated, right? Because they'd been surfed and turfed through the actual uh, water and banged against a number of other rocks. And I had a good look at it. And then I looked at the cross section and I realized it was not a whale, as you might imagine, because I reckon 90% of the material that we find is either a whale or a shark. It was a bird and wow. not just any ordinary bird. It was part of the leg bone of what I suspect is the largest flying bird that ever took to the sky. <laughs> Which is really cool. And so I was like, oh, guys, you got to come and check this out. It's really incredible. And so I didn't quite click at first. And then, of course, I started to look at the ridges and everything. And I was like, yeah, this, what this is, this is bone from Pelagornis. Uh -huh. Pelagornis has a wingspan up to six meters no. in length. No way. Same as the height of a giraffe, right? <laughs> Far out. It is all kinds of terrifying as well, and they're unlike any modern bird, right? So they were first appeared roughly 62 million years ago in New Zealand. They survived for an incredible amount of time up until the, uh, the earliest Pleistocene at about 2.6 million years ago. And um, I was holding part of the leg bone. And the only place that you can find these birds on the continent of Australia is in Bayside, wow. and that's it. Wow. So the other really tantalising thing about their anatomy is that they have these bizarre pseudo teeth that run along the bill that look like teeth they they look like a prehistoric dinosaur but of course they're not so they're, they're really quite strange so that was a really neat find that's amazing well. i'm i'm maybe it's because of its name but i'm picturing like a pelican on steroids is that sort of what it might have looked like <laughs> With Originally, <laughs> yeah, exactly. When it was first found, it was thought to belong to that kind of pelican-like family. But what makes it even stranger than that is the group of birds that it belongs to are called the Anseriforms, which include ducks and chickens. 
super That's duper terrifying. weird. Right? It's really weird. But then, so did this did this prehistoric bird already have feathers? It had feathers, absolutely. So uh, it would have had, you know, I think of something something similar to an albatross taking on that kind of ecological niche. So it's thought that this animal, uh, straight after the dinosaurs kind of disappeared, this animal took on the ecological niche of a pterosaur when it was alive. Wow. So those flying reptiles. So it would, yeah, so it would be, would it be hunting on the land then? Or do you think it was a marine bird? It was almost definitely a marine bird. So those bizarre bony projections coming out of the bill itself probably served as a good anchoring point. So what it would have done is it probably would have been soaring over the immensity of the Southern Ocean and then using its uh, sharp bill ensnaring slippery prey like squid and then going to another area to then digest it. Do we have much of an idea what would have been around at that time in terms of its prey? Because I'm assuming squid would have been, you know, very, very rare in terms of its preservation. Correct. And we're basically assuming that there were squid there. Now, we know that nautiloids or like, you know, common nautilus uh, were there. We know that they have left because they've got that shell. They actually leave quite, you know, a hardy material behind to fossilize. But squid, on the other hand, they're basically all soft. They have the hardest part of their body uh, is the pen that you can find inside of them. So you wouldn't expect to really find them in the fossil record, but we expect them to be there. Um, this comes down to a taphonomic bias, meaning that the sediments is a, probably a high-energy uh, environment, so that soft-bodied organisms probably won't survive when we do find them. Wow. So we've got your your 5 million-year-old tuna and your giant um, terror chicken seabird. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, whatever that thing is, Heligonus, it's real weird. Uh, but then I kept on looking. We kept on going through, you know, and this was only an hour in. And um, I saw this weird cylindrical shape at the bottom of the seafloor. And I thought to myself, that is just too weird. I have to go and check that out. And it was just kind of lying on top of the sand itself, you know. It, so the incredible thing about a lot of the stuff that you find in Bayside is um, the most important tool you need with you are your eyes. It's unlike any expedition that I've ever done before throughout all of Victoria. You think of paleontological expeditions, you think of hammers and chisels, right? Mm. This material just rodes naturally out of the sediment and then all you need in order to find it are your eyes and they're almost 99% of the time the loose at the bottom of the sea floor. So you don't need to use any of that heavy kind of gear in order to extract this material. It's and so... Sorry. I was um, going to say, must have felt like Christmas Day for you to be oh. down there and, and just have this, all of this just sort of sitting there ready for you. Um, it often, uh, so what happens is the sand ebbs and flows in a number of different areas. And then, you know, the sand will actually reveal all these incredible erratics directly underneath you that will also include the fossils. And on this one occasion, for example, you know, I dived down. I, I went down to see what this long cylindrical pipe looking thing was. I got it in my hands and then I kind of propelled myself off the seafloor with my feet, came back up for a breath of air, exhaled. I had a look down at my hands and there were these six gorgeous vertebrae from a lambda-form mako great white shark that were in my hands that were articulated as well. And articulated remains are really, really rare. So this means so that they're all together. Correct. So mm. they were all stuck along a line with one another. So these six gorgeous looking vertebrae from what would have been a large predatory shark were just lying there on the bottom of the sea floor. 
Um, and again, it represents a really unique data point for us to understand the evolution of the great white sharks because we don't know much about how great white sharks, how they evolved, because when you think about it, um, mostly what we find in the fossil record are their teeth. We don't find their vertebral columns. So to be able to find something that's made up of like 97% cartilage is really unique for us. Mm. I'm not at all surprised. Ben, what, what happened? Because that seems to be like the, the, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, that area for, for paleontologists are pretty much all over the world. Like, why is that area so rich in all of these fossil remains? And, and why are they so close to the surface? It is a really good question that you pose it, and I think a lot of it has to come down to luck. So when you think of Australia as a whole, tectonically, it's basically inactive. We're in the middle of this gigantic plate. So you would imagine that if there are any fossil areas, they've got to be on the coastline where active erosion is taking place, right? And when it comes to Beaumaris itself, you can see the cliff line, and then it starts to dip at about a 45 degree angle directly into the water, exposing all of the sediments. So the sediments themselves are deposited on top of one another called a monocline. And then that monocline then tilts at a 45 degree angle, exposing every single one hmm. of those sediments to the erosional activities of the waves. And that's how they're churning out all these incredible fossils. Right. So you depend on coastal erosion, basically, for, for your finds. That's really it interesting. All the way through uh, every single fossil site in uh, in Victoria that we basically rely on in terms of finding whales and sharks, we rely on coastal erosion in order for us to actually see what is going on there. So, I mean, coastal erosion is bad for a number of reasons, as you already know, fam. But, I mean, for us paleontologists, it's, it's great. It really does mean that we can start to unravel the mysteries into the evolution of entire groups of animals. Ben, I could talk to you all day, and I'm sure Farm could too, but um, we have to move on. We were going to talk about the ethics of fossil collecting in the area, which obviously with the, you know, the richness of these finds is a hugely important subject. Let's leave that one for now, and next time we get you on in a few weeks' time, a um, bit post-radiothon, we'll pick up where we left off because I also want to talk about what happens to these, uh, these specimens once you collect them. Obviously, they go to the museum, but and, and, and also the, the um, continuing of this exploration of this area it's amazing stuff. Yeah, so um, do I have time to talk about the ethics of collection or is that for next time? No, we'll have to save that one for next time. We've got three more guests ready to talk to us. So <laughs> <laughs> That's okay because, you know, I could talk for hours on we, this kind of stuff, we, so I really apologise for taking up so much No, time not here. at all. We could listen to you for hours too. So let's, let's um, just pause this one for now and we'll catch up with you in a few weeks. Cool. That sounds great, guys. I might just do one plug, guys. If you are interested in what we're talking about here with the Lost World of Bayside, what you can do is you can follow us on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you type in the Lost World of Bayside, you can see what the team is getting up to at Museums Victoria and the project itself. It's really fun. And of course, um, we're based off philanthropy and donations. So if you can afford any donations during this time, we would very much appreciate it. Excellent. Thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Ben. And we look forward to the movie production of the Lost World of Bayside. <laughs> And, and finding out who's going to be playing um, Ben Franciscelli. There you go. I finally got your name right. <laughs> I'm curious to see who's going to be playing Pelagornis as well. <laughs> no, that's going to be crazy to see what happens with that. Excellent. All right. Thanks, Ben. We'll catch you soon. Thanks. Okay. See bye you for later. now. Ben Franciscelli there from the his uh, vertebrate paleontologist from Museums Victoria. It is 9.31. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 R. A couple of station announcements. Thank you, Narrator. Melton City Council is calling on curators, artists and arts groups to apply for its 2021 exhibition program and explore themes that connect with changing communities in the West. 
Applications are open now until Monday, August 24. Visit melton.vic.gov.au slash exhibition 2021 for more information. Melton City Council, sponsoring Triple R. Triple R's Radiothon starts on Friday, August 21. Everyone who subscribes during Radiothon goes into the running to win the following major prizes. From King Island Tourism, a King Island luxury package for two. Experience the rugged coastlines and natural beauty of King Island with return flights, accommodation, meals and transport included. A coffee at home pack from Wide Open Road, containing everything needed to brew cafe quality, filter style coffee at home, plus a year long coffee subscription. The Cinema Nova Gold Pass, a double pass to films showing at Cinema Nova for 12 months. Spend a day in nature at Bray, the Good Food Guide's 2020 Restaurant of the Year. Explore the organic farm, enjoy a long lazy lunch and stay overnight in one of their luxurious guest suites. For the full list of prizes and more info, head to rrr.org.au. Triple R, yours in isolation. Indeed, Triple R is where you are, where the time is 9.33, 27 minutes to 10. Uh, without further ado, we're going to catch up with PT Hirschfield from Spider Crabs Melbourne and also Save Our Spider Crabs. Good morning, PT. Good morning, Bron and listeners. <laughs> Great to catch up with you again. Uh, what's been going on with the uh, Save Our Spider Crabs campaign? You've been really busy the last couple of weeks. Yeah, really busy. I'll give you a really quick roundup. In big news this week, one of our campaign's keen supporters, Mark Jones, received a handwritten reply letter from Sir David Attenborough himself saying how sad he was to hear about what's been happening to the spider crab malting aggregations and giving us some advice on organisations we can reach out to to help support our campaign for a no-take season. And really excitingly, uh, on Thursday of last week, VFA invited some of us to come and observe and document their satellite tagging of 15 spider crabs as part of their new research into the efforts on this species. And you can head over to the Spider Crabs Melbourne page to see some of the underwater footage now, of those crabs carrying their brand new tracking hardware. Now, you, uh, you went down there with them. How was that experience, PT? Yeah, really interesting and uh, got, got to capture some good photos and footage and uh, the new newly appointed fishing minister, Melissa Horn, shared some of the photos uh, of the tagged crabs on her Facebook page and so far over 80 people have left comments on that post for the minister so that she can read how strong the community support is for a no-take season. We'd love to encourage people to keep adding their voices to that post so the minister knows how important it is that these animals not be targeted en masse during their most vulnerable part of their life cycle. Yes, that uh, that letter from um, Sir David Attenborough, I imagine, is something that, you know, it's, it's quite a significant piece of correspondence for your campaign. It is, and it's actually the second letter that Sir David has written in support of better outcomes for these animals at this time in their life cycle. Now, you've got a, uh, a presentation coming up with Day by the Bay as well. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, Day by the Bay have also invited us to present about the spider crabs issue as part of a statewide online event next month. So stay tuned to SCM and SCA for more details on that one. Plus, there's been some great media coverage. We've 
also just done a Skype interview with an animal lovers program called Dogatoko on Japan's only public broadcaster, which will be airing soon. Plus, Divelog Australasia have got a double page spread on the issue, and Mornington Peninsula News Group are going to be presenting some coverage this week as well. And we'd love supporters to keep sending in their letters to the editor uh, to help us keep the concerns in focus until they're resolved. Fantastic. And finally, PT, last time we caught up with you, you were talking about a logo. There was a logo competition for Save Our Spider Crabs. Have you landed on a design? Yeah, so one logo did come out far in advance of the other and we're currently just doing some final few modifications because some people were concerned that the spider crab on the design looked a bit too spidery, go figure. <laughs> so pretty soon you'll be able to order a bumper sticker and probably a T-shirt just to show your support of the campaign uh, featuring that SOS Save Our Spider Crabs design. You've been so busy. Thanks so much for a a very speedy catch-up on what you guys have been up to. And uh, if people want to find out more information before we catch up with you next, where can they go? So head over to the public Spider Crabs Alliance Facebook page or the closed group Spider Crabs Melbourne. And if you include a reference to Radio Marinara in your answer to the application questions, that will fast-track your application into the group. Thanks so much, PT. We'll catch up with you soon. Thanks so much. PT Hirschfield there from Save Our Spider Crabs. Hi, this is Tim Whitten. If you want to know what's going on in the ocean, tune in to Radio Marinara on 102.7 3RRR. You know where it is. Yeah, thanks, Tim. We do know where it is. It is also 9.41. And, you, yes, you are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Now, back in 2011, Rebecca Prince-Ruiz was working for Perth environmental advocacy group Earth Carers when she had a novel idea to try living life without plastic for a month. She asked her colleagues to join her in her personal challenge and what's followed is a global movement of 250 million people in 177 countries to reduce their plastic use. Plastic Free documents the birth of Plastic Free July, one of the world's most successful environmental movements. To find out about its origins and how the world has taken it on. Let's cross to firstly Port Stephens in New South Wales to speak with its author Joanna Atherfold Finn. Good morning, Joanna. Good morning. How are you? Well, thank you. And yourself? Yes, yes, going very well this morning in, in blustery Port Stephens. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, over to Perth in Western Australia to speak with co-author and Plastic Free July founder Rebecca Prince Ruiz. Good morning, Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca, have we got you there? Uh, looks like we haven't got Rebecca on Skype. Nerida's going to try and get her on. Um, oh, are we, have we got you there? Yes, we have. Good morning. Oh, great. Good morning. Um, I wanted to start with you, Rebecca, and uh, just to ask you about whether you had any idea when you suggested at work that maybe, you know, you and some colleagues could go plastic-free for a month. Did you have any idea that what you were starting was a global movement? I had no idea that what I was doing was changing anything that what went into my own bin and that that of my friends and colleagues that join in. It really was just a, a personal challenge to make a difference what we were doing in our own lives. Let's go through that number again. 250 million people, that's quarter of a billion people in 177 countries. Would you say that sort of this result, and it's only so far, uh, is something that's beyond your wildest dreams? Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I got stuck when we went from 40 people in the first year to 400 in the second year and then 4,000. I just, 
I couldn't believe, and I was, I think, I guess, really, really, really reassured that so many people were like me and and wanted to make a difference and not feeling so alone. But yeah, I could never, ever have imagined it would becoming become what it has. Um, Farm, feel free to jump in with a question because I know Plastic Free July is something that's very near and dear to your heart, something you've been championing here for the last few years. Yes, absolutely. It's really lovely to have you on the show, Rebecca. I'm a big fan, obviously, having done Plastic Free July for, oh, I think six or seven years now and uh, trying to get as many people on board as I can whenever it is uh, about to happen or happening every year. It is such a, a fantastic and... Um, amazing behavior change program, really, because that's what it's really about, isn't it, Rebecca? Like the, uh, it, it's not just um, cutting out plastic for the one month, but but really seeing which behaviors are actually sticking. Um, so, and I know that uh, from previous interviews that that you've done quite a bit of research into the behavior change aspect of this. Um, could you talk a bit about that? I'm very curious about what your what has come out of some of that research that you have been leading? Yeah, sure. And, you know, thanks to you, because if it wasn't for people like you doing the challenge, it still would be just me and my family and my bin. So I think intuitively in in the initial years, because we weren't trying to start a campaign, it was really just about trying to change ourselves. We weren't trying to educate people. We were just trying to make a difference and reduce our plastic waste. So, because And it was hard. So we started to... Um, and and we I didn't have all the answers, but together we had lots of the solutions. So we always started out sharing people's ideas and their tips for how to reduce plastic in their own lives. And doing that in a group was really helpful. And and then as people started to take it from their own lives into their workplaces, their children's schools, their communities, we started to share those stories of change and then that inspired and empowered others. And intuitively, that is the heart of behaviour change. And in the last few years, we've been working with a behavioural scientist and as the campaign has got bigger, we wanted to make sure... I was really clear, and we write a lot about this in the book, and Joanna did an extensive interview with our behavioural economist. Um, I wanted to make sure that the message was getting out, not just to the, this little bubble of eco-activists that I live and worked amongst, but a wide mainstream audience. And so the work that we do now, we're very mindful of continuing those same things. It's not about blaming and shaming. It's about helping people to reduce their plastic use, sharing ideas, sharing stories of what others in their community have done. It's not a, a say no, don't do this message or blaming and shaming. It's really about focusing on what people can do, not worrying about what they can't and creating new social norms. And I think that's what I love about Plastic Free July and why it's been so successful, that there's something in it for for everybody there's all you know we can't all do everything it's not about perfection it's about lots of people making small changes and when we do that together at the same time that's what where it adds up and creates impact 
Joanna? Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and you've, you've also had um, lots of information on the website, um, you know, for people to, to, to go to and, and see how they can start on this wonderful journey. So what I'm wondering is what, what made you and Joanna want to specifically write and publish a book about this? Um, so I was invited to write the book by um, the wonderful Elspeth Menzies at New South uh, Press, and it I, like I knew it was a compelling story. I knew it was an amazing story because of, of of my own experience in the last ten years and hearing stories of people like you and people around the world that were making a difference. And I felt. That this is a story of hope and it's a story of action. And so when I was invited to write the book, again, I, I just didn't want it to be read by people doing Plastic Bridge Live because I really feel this is an issue we can all take action and we all need to take action on. And so I was really clear that I wanted it to appeal to a mainstream audience and um, I reached out to Joanna and asked her if she would join me because I just didn't, I'm not a writer. Um, and I wanted somebody who was a beautiful writer, which Joanna was, is. Um, I read her book of short stories, Watermark, and I wanted her to, to um, write with someone that could help me find the thread, find what was interesting in those stories and put it together in a way that would speak to everyone. And fortunately, when I asked her, she said yes. And she'd been doing Plastic Free July as well too. So that was a lovely... Um, yeah, that was going to be my next question to Joanna. So Joanna, when you, when you started uh, writing this book together with Rebecca, um, did you know what you were getting yourself into? <laughs> um, no, no, I had no idea. <laughs> um, I mean, I knew what the um, writing process involved and, and what it was like to um, work on a book, um, but I'd never done that as a collaborative process before. Um, so it, it was, um, I think it was a bit of a leap of faith for both of us, um, but I was just so gratified that um, Rebecca had asked me to co-author the book. Um, as Rebecca mentioned, I'd been doing Plastic Free July. Um, there'd also been a major um, shipping container spill in our local area, so my husband was involved in picking up plastic off the ocean um, where he's used to picking up um, seafood. Um, and there was also the plastic bag backflip in our local area. So it was a, a confluence of different things that made me think this is just the perfect time um, to learn a lot more about the plastic waste issue and to spread that message um, further through a publication. Um, yeah, so it was it was just a wonderful opportunity that was presented to me and I was in awe of Rebecca and what she had done and I wanted to find out more. Joanna, it's a really great book uh, in terms of how it, it just sort of follows the journey initially from its thought origins uh, and then explores all sorts of areas. So the story of, uh, of throwaway living, living um, tackling mm -hmm. the top four, which I thought is a really good approach, sort of looking at plastic bags, disposable water bottles, plastic straws, disposable cups. They're the sort of things that you know it's easy to give those things up I've already given those things up um, apart from at the moment where it's hard to get a coffee in Melbourne without having a disposable cup there's not many places that will uh, allow you to take your own cups at the moment but obviously that yeah. will end at some point um, and uh, and I'm just wanting to ask you actually while we're on the pandemic um, how hard has it been I guess this is more a question well for both of you really about advocating for plastic free living in the middle of a pandemic 
Um, I'll just say something briefly, and then you know, Rebecca can certainly expand from a campaign point of view. Um, but yeah, it was um, the pandemic actually sort of came about when we were just in the final stages of the book, and um, we really thought, you know, is this book still going to um, hold the same message when we're going into a very unexpected um, period of time? And we thought, well, yes, it is, because a lot of the messages in the book um, relate to all sorts of areas of life. But also people, I think, are far more concerned than they have been about what we're doing to the environment and what the repercussions of what we're doing are. So what we've tried to do and continue to do is still find ways to be as plastic-free as we can um, in that current environment. And I think the message with plastic-free is always do what you can with what you have. So that has been allowed to continue uh, through the pandemic. And obviously there are situations where, as you mentioned, the coffee um, reusable coffee cups are not being accepted in some areas. Um, but we found certain areas have actually improved. So a lot more home baking. I don't know if that's going on in Melbourne at the moment, but it certainly happened here. Um, people are finding that they're, they're sort of going back to that more simple way of life in certain ways and um, maybe buying from a local supplier instead of a major supermarket. Um, so, yeah, there's some areas where we can improve and other areas that have been a bit more challenging. Joanna, uh, sorry, Rebecca, we'll have to wrap up, but um, one last comment from you on that in particular. Yeah, um, I agree with everything Joanna has said and... You know, we've just continued to be astounded by the creative ways that people are looking at reducing their waste and not just their plastic waste, but their food waste as well. And it's, I think, really testament to the fact that we all want to live in a clean environment. No one is okay with seeing plastic in our landfill and, and our waste ending up in our environment and our oceans and no matter what the how challenging the times are, I think there's something we can all do to to do better and that is the message for our times in in so many different ways. So Plastic Free, the inspiring story of a global environmental movement and why it matters, uh, written uh, by Rebecca Prince-Ruiz and Joanna Atherfold-Finn, published by New South, available in all good bookstores uh, or online if you're in Melbourne at the moment. Um, thank you so much to both of you for joining us this morning on Radio Marinara and we really look forward to seeing how this movement uh, expands in the, in the years to come. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. G'day, John Clark here. When I want to learn about all things wet and salty, which is a pretty much constant desire on my part, I tune into Radio Marinara Sunday mornings at 9am on 102.73 triple R. Five minutes to ten. And, uh, yes, you are listening to Radio Marinara on 3 triple R, and we are now crossing to Rex Hunter. Good morning, Rex. Good Ron. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Excellent. We've got you on Skype and phone, so I'm going to hang up the phone because I didn't realise oh, that Nerida was getting you on Skype. So great to have you. Uh, now, we mentioned at the start of the program, you're talking about a particular interesting timepiece in Williamstown. Uh, yeah, it's called the Time Ball Tower. So that was um, built in 1849. So what it, what it is, it's... Um, well, we, we need to go back, actually. We need to go back right to, back to the uh, 1700s when... Um, the uh, it was a thing called uh, longitude. Obviously, we know about longitude. Longitudes is the uh, meridian, vertical meridians on a on a globe. Uh, latitudes are horizontal horizontal meridians. So uh, back in the 
back in the up until the 1700s, uh, there was actually no no way of uh, finding your longitude at sea. It can be found on land, you get, you get a latitude, but there was no way of finding a longitude. So there was a, a prize put out by the uh, English government for £20,000, which these days uh, translates to millions of pounds. And from there, there was a guy called uh, Carpenter called John Harrison. And he in, in, in ended up inventor, inventing um, three chronometers. So the first one was like weighed 30, 30 odd kilos and you know, half a meter high by half a meter wide. And it took him 30 years to actually perfect this chronometer down to the size of a, like just five inches across, you know, 100, 140 mil. Um, and with that, because the Earth is basically a, basically a sphere, you can divide it into hours. So every hour of a clock is equal to 15 degrees on the in your um, meridian. So Greenwich Mean Time is the uh, decided that was going to be the prime meridian for uh, all everyone sailing. So everyone basically sailed from Marid from Greenwich, which was counted as zero, and every 15 degrees was an hour past it. So by the time you got to Melbourne, you were nine hours and um, 35 minutes and 18 seconds, something like that, ahead of Greenwich Mean Time. So, but to, to um, work out where you were on Earth, you know, I said you can work out your latitude, but you didn't know your longitude because, like even that Dutch navigators didn't know where they longitude were and crashed inside of the coast of WA a number of times. So this is really, really important to find out that. So if you knew the um, what your time at Greenwich, and then your time where you were, and you worked out the hours between using your clock or chronometer, you'd work out how far you had gone. So, um, so Rex, where does the time ball tower at Williamstown come into well, this? We're getting there, Brian. We, we kind of need to get there quickly because we've got a minute and 15 seconds left of the program. Well, this is where the time ball tower came in. So a time ball tower, they drop a time ball each day at 1 o'clock. So that way you can check your chronometer. And so that way you can work out where on earth you were. On, you obviously knew you were in Melbourne. But you can check it. So it's an accurate way of working out where you are on the earth. Ha! Huh. That's fascinating. So it was, so was, it, was it pretty widely used? Oh, it's, it's 1 o'clock each day it would be dropped so ship's captains could check their chronometers. So it was a very, very important um, navigation tool. It's obviously predated GPS and all that type of thing. Brilliant. And uh, Loran C and other types of navigation. Fantastic. Rex, we're going to have to end it there, but we'll catch up with you in, in two weeks' time or three weeks' time for our Radiothon show. Uh, right. Yeah, it's awesome. I'll catch up with you off here and we'll plan that one out. Hey, thanks so much for today. No problem. See you, Bron. We'll catch you soon. Uh, thanks, right, to, thanks to Rex. Thanks to our guests, Joanna Atherfold-Finn, Rebecca Prince-Wurz. Uh, thank you also to P.T. Hirschfield, Ben Franciscelli. Thank you so much, Fum. Oh, we lost. Place. Yeah, we got it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks to Nerida in uh, a different studio to me, but also here, in, uh, in, uh, here at Triple. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.